The road we're on is paved in Garth. Come along on the journey. As we explore Garthology. Think of it more as a conversation. I like that. So if this is truly a conversation, then I say let the conversation begin. Hi guys, it's Deb. And I'm Pete. And I'm Jess. We are back again with our latest episode of Garthology. For Season 2, Episode 9, we are going to review the first episode of Garth's The Road I'm On documentary, currently available on Netflix in the U.S. The Road I'm On originally aired as a two-night event on A&E's biography series. This mini-docuseries digs deep into the life and rise of Garth Brooks, as discussed by Garth and those around him. It is an in-depth and intimate look into his struggles to break into country music, as well as his personal struggles with fame and what comes along with it. For today's episode, we will only be discussing the first episode of the documentary. And similar to our season one, episode four discussion of Garth's Las Vegas Wind Show, we will discuss our thoughts and feelings as we dig into this first part of the series, which lasts one hour and 25 minutes. So let's begin. First of all, I just want to say that when I hit play to watch this first part of the series so that I could capture my thoughts on it, my Netflix account put up a, are you sure you really want to watch this again? Judgmental error. <laughs> That's hilarious. To which I enthusiastically hit yes. That's funny. Just kidding. It really doesn't have that error, but if it did, I'm pretty sure Netflix would be judging me right about now. <laughs> again? Come on. There's so much more and that's what you're going to watch again? I can't even. I've lost track of how many times I've watched this. Yeah. I honestly have. You know, it's crazy because now when I watch it, the first thing I pick up on is the finish it, fin like our ending, right? right? And I'm like, hey, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's really It's cool. true. Yeah. That and now we have the showtime. Showtime. Yep, mm -hmm. that's in there too. Yeah, I love how it starts off with him in his Jeep, you know, and, and he's heading around on the property and he talks about how Tennessee is, is home to him, right? The land, the people, they treat it as if it's his home. You know, he heads off uh, to the point the point on his property you imagine being a being a bug in the dirt around that fire pit at some times holy moly <laughs> yeah the people that have probably sat around that fire pit oh the stories told songs written yeah it's true and i like how it starts off showing us the stadium tour which is about when this was released right you know and so we're seeing kind of present day when it first starts out Getting back to the point, I really like that that's where he says where he could solve the world's problems, because that spot is beautiful. I think I could solve a lot of the world's problems right there at the fire pit also. It is beautiful. I mean, the views up there look amazing. Yeah. I wonder how much property he has out there, like how many acres that is, because he was driving down that long dirt road, which obviously seemed like a private road to get there. So, I mean, they must have a fair amount of land. Yeah, yeah it's got to be. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I kept noticing, you know, because I like to like smoke food and barbecue and stuff like that. I kept noticing that big smoker grill that he's got <laughs> over his shoulder there. I'm like, oh, I wonder what kind of meals have been cooked on that thing before. No, between him and Trisha, there's no telling. Right. Probably really good stuff. Yeah. Right. Can you imagine the stuff that she must get ready for him to then put on that oh, smoker? Man. Oh, my gosh. It's got to be so good. Yeah. So then the next, just about the next scene, he starts talking about his parents, how his mom was the dreamer, and his dad says, that's great, you can really get there, but you got to really work for it. Yeah, his dad, you could tell, definitely put in that, you know, get in, get down to the grit, put the work in, and you'll be rewarded from it. You know, you, you, could, you could dream anything you want, but it's not just going to be handed to you. You got to get out there and work for it. Yeah, I love that that good balance there. And you can definitely, I think, see both of those qualities in Garth. Like he took both of those things to heart, I think. For sure. Yeah, that developed him as a person. 
because he's got that dreamer side of him, Mm -hmm. but he also knows that it's not just going to be handed to him. He's worked for everything that he's got. Yeah. And, and even now that he's had, that he has it and you could tell through the many years of success, you know, through the nineties and stuff like that, while he was out on tour, it was all there and, you know, blowing up, but it never slowed him down with how much energy it seemed that he would put on stage, you know, and even to this day, you know, we've, he works for it. Yeah. Yeah. And expects the people around him to work for it as well, like to, you know, be on it as much as he is. Right. I think that they kind of all feed off of that with him, right? They see how hard he wants it, how hard he works for it. And they know that if they're going to be there and be a part of it, they got to put the work in as well. Yeah. And and let's be real. who Who's going to work with Garth and like want to be the one to let him down? Not me. Right. You know, probably nobody around him in his inner circle either, I'm guessing. Right. Right. Exactly. He even talks at the very beginning of this, you know, he says to the guys as he's kind of pumping them up during the rehearsal for the stadium tour that, you know, they're not going to just sit back and this isn't going to just be easy, that this will actually be the roughest tour they've ever been on. That's amazing when you think of how many years they've all been together. And he's saying, no, this is the one where we're going to put in the hardest amount of work. Push harder, do more. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a a good trait. I think that his father, you know, put in him, you know, he mentions this one day he went to work with his dad and his dad had introduced him one of his coworkers and Garth shakes his coworkers hands. and, And after that, Garth's dad had mentioned to him, he said, you know, how did you shake his hand? And that's where he got the lesson and, and the talk on, you know, when you shake somebody's hand, it has to be sincere, you know, not a death grip, but a sincere handshake that you know that when you shake that person's hand and, you know, Gar says man or woman, that you know that that person's got your back. No matter what happens in the next five or 10 minutes, you know that there's always somebody there for you that they're going to have your back. And I remember a long time ago, I remember that, you know, shaking somebody's hand is one thing, but when you shake somebody's hand, look them in the eye, like that's it. I mean, that is as good as your word. And so when I saw that in the in the biography in the episode, I thought to myself, you know, brought back a lot of memories of when I was taught that lesson. It's a good lesson to learn, good lesson to know. Yeah, and he says about that handshake, he'd bet his life on it that that person would be there for yeah. him, that it means that much to him. Yeah, and it is. I mean, I think anybody probably you've shaken a million hands in your life, but you know the difference when someone shakes your hand, looks you in the eye, makes it a point to get your name again. Like they really take just a second to connect with you. It makes a difference. Uh, Like with any interaction, I think after that with that person, that initial contact really does make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I like that he says men or women, it doesn't matter which, because for most women, I think growing up, a lot of us are taught to not firmly shake someone's hand. Yeah. Like you get a lot of women who just lightly grasp someone's hand. and, And I, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, we need to be there for that person just as much, you know, if we're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So we need to go in for that handshake in the same way. Yeah, it's a great point. And you can bet Garth taught his girls that I'm 100% sure. Yeah, absolutely. I bet so. And then after that, we go into, they do that little snippet of the country radio seminar that happened in 2019. And Garth sings that little snippet of American Dream from the Lost Sessions. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I was so happy to find out that during this research that that was actually on the Lost Sessions because when I watched the biography and I heard that, I'm like, man, that's a good one there. And I didn't know it was on the Lost Sessions. Had no idea it was there. And now to know that it could be in the playlist, it went immediately into the playlist. And again, it's very, very short. You know, we all know that. But- It is a very, very good short little snippet, you know, of music there. Yeah. Every time I hear it, I'm like, are you sure you don't want to finish it? I feel like it would be a really, really great song. I think there's more there. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great song. I'm going to go ahead and drop a little snippet of it here too, so everybody can hear it also. Awesome. Never got past these four lines, but this was my childhood. Okay. And the old fields fed our family. Through the amber waves of grain Oh, and God, He was our Savior Though His name was spoken vain My dad would leave for work each morning In the twilight's last gleaming As every day I'd awaken the American 
And it's a it's a great lead into how he starts to talk about Yukon, Oklahoma. Oh, it really is. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Smack dab, middle of America. And we talk a lot about, or I talk a lot about, you know, things in Garth's music and the lyrics that put me in a place, right? I've talked about Alabama Clay. Like, man, I'd love to go there. I don't know, man. Yukon, Oklahoma could be a place to visit, right? It could be a bucket list place just to see, like, you know, exactly (laughs) what it's like. And then it gets you close to, you know, downtown. You could walk the same roads that Garth walked. Yeah, you ain't kidding. Hang out at the same places. That'd be cool. (laughs) Jess, have you ever been there? Um, I've been through Yukon a bunch of times. We used to drive out that way when I was a kid, um, but it's not really near me. So I don't, I've never spent time there. I've just kind of driven through. They have a water tower that has Garth's name on it. So every time we passed it, we'd be like, oh, oh that's there's cool. Garth's hometown. <laughs> that's, <nice. laughs> that's awesome. Someday, Pete, someday. We got to do that. Uh, we got to take this podcast on the road, get some big bus and, you know, do that whole Garth stop thing that we talked about, you know, episodes back. Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. So then we get into a little bit of Garth's history, how his dad came into the marriage with his mom with one child. His mom had three children, and then they have two together, which is Kelly, Garth's brother, and Garth himself. So Garth was the baby, the last of six children in a blended family. And I like when he he talks about his family and he says, the dynamic of our family was 120 miles an hour, 24 hours a yeah. day. It was never quiet. It was never calm. Oh, awesome. I can only imagine. That's a lot like my family. There's a lot of us and it was never quiet. Yeah. With that many kids, there's no way. Could you imagine like just nonstop? And it seemed like, you know, obviously the age difference in between all of them, you know, Garth being the baby of six, like you always had somebody doing something at some different age group or whatever. I just couldn't imagine what his poor parents went through, you know? Right. Right, with all of them competing for attention. But it was cool. I love the story about how they talk, about how they would sit the family down once a week and they have that family talent show performance night where they would all try to do something to be better than the next. And I thought to myself, you know, I obviously am much younger. I didn't grow up in that era, but it's not like now where you can grab your kids and, you know, go play mini golf or whatever it is. You had to find a way, I imagine, to keep that many kids busy. And what's a better way to do it, especially for a house that seems to have some talent in it, obviously. I mean, you know, for them to put on talent shows to keep it busy like that and try to outdo one another, be cool to be a fly on the wall then, see see what came out of there. Yeah, and Mike Brooks, Garth's brother, talks about how he taught Garth that little uh, string section on the guitar, and then a couple months goes by. And their dad says, hey, Mike, can you play that for me? And Garth says, you mean this one? And then he plays it even yeah, better. Yeah, blows him out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Poor Mike. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, going back to the way that, uh, you know, Garth talked about how his father, you know, instilled the work ethic in him. You know, he mentions in the biography that his dad did work a lot, you know, multiple jobs. But he would always come home and find time to play ball with the kids. And, you know, he said, man, I just can't imagine now how tired my dad used to be. And Garth has always talked about, you know, his dad being a Korean War vet, Golden Glove boxer, fact that his dad ran the ship, you know, around the house. But there's a part in it where they talk about the kids playing sports, right? Because Garth, they mentioned in it that the one way out of Yukon was through sports, right? I mean, that was going to be your one way out. And that his dad always instilled in them that they always had to be a part of something, a team. They had to be a part of something that was bigger than just themselves. And I thought to myself, you know, that's pretty cool. Like, I don't know, man, his dad seems like a very, very smart man, obviously, and really, really put in growing foundation blocks, I guess you could say, on just showing those kids that, you know, life wasn't always just going to be about themselves. If they were going to get it, they were going to have to work for it. And it was always better to do it as part of a team other than just individually. That's kind of what I got from it. I thought it was cool. Yeah. And and that made me think when I was watching this again, that I kind of feel like Garth brought that into the band. Hmm. You know, he brought those lessons that his dad taught him about being part of a team. Yeah. He brought that into working with the band because it's not whenever he talks, it's not always just about himself. He talks about the band members, too. And so to me, I saw that as the team being part of something bigger than yourself, being the whole band. And you're right. When he does talk about the music and he talks about the band, it's not about my music, my band. It's about our music, our band, you know, our shows, 
And uh, yeah, that that's a good point. I never, uh, I didn't think about it that way, but that's great. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. There's that part where he is talking to Mike Palmer, the drummer, and he's like, Palmer, you know, you're coming in, you're leading us in, you're banging on that drum, but you're keeping us all going, you know? And so I think it's, I'm sure at different points, it's different people that he's like, you're important and this is what you're doing in this way that's keeping the rest of us on track or that's pulling us back in this song or whatever. And who doesn't want to be in any job a part of something like that where you feel like what you're doing is important and it's contributing to the whole. I think, you know, that's probably part of why his band's been with him for 20 plus years. Yeah, that could be the longest single team with the same lineup (laughs) in any sport or genre. I mean, because they've been together a long time. And the other thing I like when it comes to um, that kind of that history part where they were talking, you know, he filled in a lot of information about his mom as well, where he called her the life force. Uh, Mm -hmm. Her name was Colleen Carroll. She was also a singer in the 50s. Garth talks about how she appeared on the popular music show Ozark Jumbelee in July of 1955. And they actually show a recording of her singing during that. That's amazing. That's beautiful to see. And his mom really could sing. What a great memento to have to be able to pull back up and have that forever, you know, with with your mom in a time like that. But yeah, she really, really could sing. And, um, you know, she was with Capitol Records at that that time. I thought that was a cool story. Another good comment that Garth made that his dad said to him, when Garth talked about why would I want to go to school when I could go get this oil rigging job and make forty or fifty thousand dollars a year? Yeah. Why even bother going to school? And his dad said, "Because that isn't what you want to do with the rest of your life." Yeah. Garth follows it up with, "How did he know that's not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life?" Mm-hmm. Crazy how your parents know, right? You know, a lot of times your parents know what's best for you. Yeah. And I don't know that his dad necessarily knew he wanted to be a singer, Sure, wanted to be famous, but I have a feeling his dad knew him well enough to know that that wouldn't be enough for him to just go work in an oil field, Right, that he would want more out of life. Yeah. That like the money sounds good right now, but long term, that yeah. was not going to make him happy. Yeah. Especially with all his energy and all, you know, all of the way that I'm sure he had been up to this point, his dad was probably looking at him going, you'll never be satisfied with just that. Yeah. And so his dad told him school is what you need. And I think Garth understood that and probably agreed. But then he heard George Strait singing Unwound on the radio with his dad. And he says, that's the moment he knew that that's who he wanted to be. That's a great story, right? He's in the truck heading down to the store with his dad, and all of a sudden, George Strait comes on the radio, and uh, you know, here's this kid from Texas. I think you're really gonna like him. And it was George Strait with Unwound, and Garth, like you said, he just knew at that point he knew what he wanted to do and who he wanted to be. He wanted to be George Strait. If only OSU had had a category to major in back then. That was like <laughs> the study of George Strait <laughs> would have been great. Had to settle for business or whatever. Well, you know. Our podcast as the Garthology, the study of Garth Brooks. Maybe we're teaching future generations of Garth yeah. Brooks. Maybe we're on Garth to Brooks's something. Garth Brooks's? To be a Garth yeah. Brooks? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so then we go to Ty England and they show Ty and Ty talks about how they met. He heard about Garth first before he actually met him. He met somebody at an open mic night who gave him Garth's name and number and said, hey, you got to go talk to this guy. He's really into music, too. I love how 90% of the people that are important in Garth's life um, musically and some personally were, you know, songwriters and people he worked with. And even Trisha, they were all people that somebody, somebody was like, you have to meet this person. Like you meet somebody and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know who you should meet? And I think some of that is just Nashville because that's how Nashville works. But it's still interesting to me how many times you hear that story over and over again when you, you know, when you were fans of Garth like we are and you hear the different stories and different connections and especially going back and researching the songs. How many times with songwriters have we heard that somebody was like, oh, you have to write with this guy. You have to meet this guy. It's just funny to me how frequently that happened. It's funny because you talk about Ty, you know, obviously being at Oklahoma and studying business. And he knew it right off the bat, like his heart wasn't in it. He's like, yeah. And then, you know, he gets the whole thing with Garth and calls Garth and they made their first song 
<laughs> when he says it, hey, even I've watched that show so many times. They made their first song on a Radio Shack recorder. Radio Shack. Look, radio. <laughs> when was the last time there was a Radio Shack around? And it just kind of dated their age at that point. Well, yeah. And he said it was a cassette recorder. <laughs> yeah. But can't you just see them all like sitting in the round with this recorder on the floor, on the table in between them and just doing what they do? Yeah. Like, yeah. that's amazing to me. That song that they sit down on the stage and they sing what had been, you know, that song that Ty had brought to him. Mm-hmm. Man. Listen to the radio. Listen to the radio. Yeah. That was mm-hmm, cool. Yeah. That was a great song. Yeah. Listen to yeah, that was a good song. Ty had mentioned, he's like, I don't know that I've sung that song since college. That's crazy. Those memories. Those guys will always have. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about how they used to play in the lunchroom at Bennett Hall. So then they go in and they start talking about tumbleweed. And Garth talks about how they became bouncers. And that there were like 10 to 12 bouncers for 2,000 college students. Yeah. I can't imagine how crazy that must have been. I can't imagine how bad I want my own tumbleweeds. This place sounds (laughs) epic. (laughs) It's funny because I've been to Tumbleweed. I went there when I was a kid. Like they had a certain- What? They had a night where you could go, like you didn't have to be 18. And we would go and just dance and- but I can't, it doesn't seem that big to me. I mean, I guess it is. It's funny because things usually seem bigger to you when you're a kid. But it could be that we were just like at one end, like wherever, you know, on the dance floor and didn't really go to the whole thing. I don't know. But in my memory, it's not huge. But the way it's described, it's really, really big. So, and even seeing the outside of it, it is really big, but I don't remember it being that big. Well, and I didn't go there till like probably the late or like, no, not late. It would have been like the early 90s, probably early to mid 90s, 92, 93. So, I mean, I didn't see it in the 80s. I don't know. It might have been like more packed then. And certainly the night that I was allowed to be there, it was not like Friday, Saturday night when it was packed with college kids. Like, I think it was probably like a week night that even I could be there. But yeah, I'm sure it was a totally different scene. You still went. She's got you and I both beat, Pete. She's been there. (laughs) So after the talk about Tumbleweed, then we meet Sandy for the first time, Garth's former wife, and she tells the story about how all the women wanted to dance with Garth because he was smooth. I could see that totally being true. I would have wanted to dance with him for sure. And then she says that on their first date, he sang for her. Let me get my guitar. I love that she remembered part of the song. That's such a girl thing that like all these years later, he'd be like, I don't remember it exactly, but I still remember this one part. Right. How about I just grab my guitar, we go back to your place and I sing to you. That is the absolute best pickup line ever. When she said that, I was like, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Talk about being smooth. I would fall for that. Me too. (laughs) Me too. You know, absolutely, Garth. Let's go. (laughs) I'll drive. (laughs) Absolutely. Ah, <laughs> oh, sweet. And then they show like those old photos of them together. Mm. Young baby Garth. Ah, mm. oh, sweet. And then we even get a little bit of the old footage of him singing uh, Merle Haggard's song, My Favorite Memory. Yeah. Ah. Oh. Yeah. I love that old footage of him performing for those just like yeah. bar crowds. That's so fun. Yeah, me too. Really cool. That makes watching this documentary worth it. Just to yeah. just to see the old footage and the old pictures. That's amazing stuff they have. Man, I wish we had then what we have today as far as being able to pick up and record. There's something I think that's lost now because when somebody is on the rise like Garth was then and when he's packing the house, like maybe not in the very beginning, but certainly as he was starting to get more popular here and they thought like this guy's going to go, like he's going to go to Nashville and he's going to be something. All you would see now is a crowd full of cell phones shining up at the stage. Like you don't, it drives me nuts to go to a concert now. And that's all you see is everybody with their cell phone in their hand, like recording, but you're missing the experience of the concert. And I think like if you're from a generation that wasn't before there were cell phones and everybody carried them, you don't know what it was before. And you don't like you, if you look at the old concert footage of Garth, like from the early nineties, you see like everyone is like eye to eye with him, like just completely wrapped attention versus if you look at it now, like maybe the very front couple of rows for sure, because they're front row and hopefully they're just paying attention to the show, but there's so much of just recording devices. 
So I think there's good and bad. Like we would have had amazing footage from then, but also it wouldn't have been the experience for him or for the people who were there. If he was just staring into a camera and the people were just yeah. looking at the lens finder. Wow. Yeah, you lose that connection, I think. We just need a designated recorder, just one. I'm glad they got at least one. I'm <laughs> glad we have these little snippets of him. Yeah. Yes. So then we move on to college and Garth is talking about how he wants to drop out. And Mike Brooks, his brother, talks a little bit about how Garth wanted to drop out. And Garth starts to tell a little bit of the story of the night I called the old man out. But we get more into that a little bit later about Garth's relationship with his dad. So his dad, of course, didn't want him to. So he continued on. And we know that because then they show Garth's college graduation picture with Garth and his parents. So good for him. He finished. It may have not been what he necessarily wanted to do, but he did the right thing. So now he's graduated college and Randy Taylor, who wrote Much Too Young, is talking about their history. He talks about how Garth was getting paid $100 to play student banquets. They'd give him $100 for him to just sit off in the corner and play some songs, which back then was a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, if someone had paid me 100 bucks back in the 80s, I would have taken it for sure. Even now for an unknown to get paid 100 bucks to sit and play for anybody is pretty good. Right. And then they start talking about Willie's Saloon, and we get to see a little bit of Willie's Saloon, which Garth played on Wednesday nights. He said it was the perfect place for to be a baby in that genre, come out, cut your teeth, and learn to be a performer. Like, Willie's was the place to do it. Yeah, and in that segment, we get a little recording of him singing Time in oh, a Bottle by Jim Croce. So good. So good. And the other thing I caught on to, and we'll see if you guys thought about it this way, too. So next, they have Sandy talking about all the different artists that Garth would cover during those shows. He'd play Julio and Willie Nelson and George Strait and Elton John, and Garth would play it, and people would call it out, or Garth would decide it, and he would play it. And then they have a recording, a little snippet of Garth playing Rocket Man by Elton John. And my first thought today, listening to that this time around, was this is what prepared him for the wind show. Yeah. Yeah. He's sitting up there. He's learning. You know, he knows all these different songs, and he's got to do them because people are asking for them. Or he's spent all this time coming up learning cover songs. And that makes the wind show make more sense. Not only, I mean, we knew from the wind show that this was the story of his life and the songs of his life. But also, you know, a big thing has always been for me, like, how did he do that show? Right. People could just call out any song and he could just play it. But this is how he trained himself in doing these Willie Saloon shows and Tumbleweed shows. He trained himself how to do those songs. Sure. It wasn't just a country genre that he learned how to play. Like he expanded his horizon with all kinds of different artists and genres. And uh, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I think that him having such older siblings also helped because, you know, he's talked about like how they were musical influences on him. But I have a brother that's 10 years older than me. And I remember knowing so much music, like word for word that I like my friends were like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what music you're, you know, but to me, I was like, how do you not know this music? And I think, you know, Garth had that fivefold because he had all these other siblings. And, you know, so he had all this music at home his whole life. And so he knew those things and he was playing an instrument at home. And so when he could go out, like he could anything that he loved, which was a wide variety of music, obviously, he could pick it up, he could play it. And, you know, all of that, I think, fed into and even Keith Urban talked about like having such a respect for people who came up through the club that way and who learned. And I think you do you learn to be a performer and not just a singer. Right. And, you know, and growing up, we talked about with his family, how they would entertain each other. And he, I think, came by that honestly from his mom. Like there was so much feeding into teaching him his whole life how to be not only a singer songwriter, but an amazing performer and Obviously, anyone we've talked about who's ever been to a Garth show, that's a huge part of it. Like, yeah. you think you know, and you think you're a fan, and then you see him live, and you're like, nope, didn't yeah. know, <laughs> had no idea. Know. That's amazing. You're right. I mean, because if you think about just what you're saying, uh, he talks about it a lot. You know how his dad, right? The music influence started with his dad with Haggard and Jones, right? You got to hang the moon on Haggard and Jones. And 
his mom with Aretha Franklin, mm-hmm. Gladys Knight and the Pips, and then his older siblings who brought in different music. That's a great, great way to look at it. Yeah. You're just not focused on one lane, right? You got an entire highway to look at of music. That's a that's a good point. And that helped him appeal to so many people, I think, and still appeal to so many different types of people and people who like so many different types of music. And, you know, he mentions in the biography that um, he explains the difference between a good entertainer will do whatever the crowd expects, whether it's what the entertainer wants to do or not. But a great entertainer and the greatest entertainers of all times, they're lucky enough to get to do what they want. And it's exactly what the crowd came to see. And I again, I think that's a perfect yeah. explanation of it. It makes very, very good sense. Yeah, it was a really good insight on his part, I think, because it's absolutely true. Yeah. So then the show goes into how Stillwater, Oklahoma, raised money for him to go to Nashville. I just can't imagine that. Like this whole community came together and got him this gift of money so that he could go to Nashville. And the look on his face that gratitude and the smile, like it's all the way up in his eyes. You can tell that even to this day, he holds that community in such high esteem for what they did for him when he was young. Yeah. He made it very, very clear that you cannot consider those people fans. Those people are blessings. And you could tell genuinely how much that means to him then and today. Yeah. So next we got to see a few other people in Garth's life. They talked to Victoria Shaw, who wrote The River and She's Every Woman. And they talked to Kent Blazy, who we all love. And they talked to Trisha. And so she's there and she's providing insight, which is awesome. And I think it's Victoria Shaw in that part talks about how a million people come, you know, may come to Nashville and they're all good, but good just isn't good enough. Like you have to be Magical. magical. She says magical. Yeah. 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 I love that. And then they show us the Daily Ocologin, which is the Ocali, the Oklahoma State University paper. And I checked it out. It's from Saturday, October 5th, 1985, which I found the paper. That's cool. And I will post it on our website. And it's an article about Garth going to Nashville. That's so cool. Yeah, that's really neat. That was a good find there. Thank God for archives. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And so now we have Garth going to Nashville on his first famous trip, heading off to Nashville, where he spends 24 hours before he turns around and comes right back home Just again. 24 hours. <laughs> you know, it's funny because the other 24-hour story that sticks in my mind about Garth is him standing and signing autographs for 24 hours. And that was not very much longer after that, you know, within probably a couple years. So it's like, it's so funny to me if somebody had been able to tell him on that trip where he spent 24 hours in Nashville, in a few years, you're going to spend 24 hours straight signing autographs. Don't worry. What an amazing comparison. Like you'd have never believed it. It, it, It's funny to hear Gar said, yeah, he thought he had it all figured out, right? He was going to go to Nashville play some music, sign a check for a million bucks, and then off he goes. <laughs> and then he says, <laughs> Right? Of course they were going to be like, come on over. Right? Yeah, he finally calls Sandy back, and she figures he had just gotten there, and he tells her, no way, I'm halfway back. But yeah, it was funny that uh, he, he you know, got a chance. Again, just like you had said, right? I know this guy that you got to talk to or whatever. Yeah. So he goes in, he's talking, and some dude comes in that's got a couple number one, you know, number two, number three singles or whatever, and Asked for an advance, seven hundred bucks. He says ah, seven hundred bucks, like you know, it was a lot of money. And Gar says, "Well, I'm making seven hundred bucks back home, you know, playing these local dives or whatever." And the guy says, "If you're making seven hundred bucks a week or a month or whatever it is, you know, back home, go back home." Gar says, "And that's exactly <laughs> what I did." Like, <laughs> that's, yeah, oh, that crushed me though. That that line though, when he's yeah. like, "Then I'd go right. home." Like, Can you imagine? Oh. Like, yeah. <laughs> That guy was Merlin. Merlin. He worked at, yeah, a- the ASPCA. ASCAP, yeah. yeah, ASCAP. The guy told him, yep, I'd go back yeah, home. It was so a- that's what Garth did. He said that uh, real life kicked him in the nuts when he found out it wasn't yeah. that easy to sign a record deal. But the other story he tells right after that, which I think is great, is he says he knew he wasn't ready, but that no one in Stillwater gave him any grief about the fact that they gave him that money and then he came back 
and they didn't, you know, they all expected to see him on TV the next time. And, and it just didn't happen that time around, but he knew he was going to go back. It just shows that as genuine as Garth feels about those people and the story that he tells, those people genuinely believed that Garth was going to be able to make it in Nashville and, and they supported him through and through. Yeah. But they ask, so what did your dad say? And he says, when he says sometimes your most driving forces are not your greatest memories, what does he mean by that? Because he never answers, what did his dad say? I think probably whatever his dad said probably hurt him at the time, but he recognizes now that it pushed him forward to probably do yeah. better. Yeah. Like, cause I'm sure him giving up in a day, I don't think his dad was probably happy that people raised money. As a person who grew up in the Midwest, if your community raises money for you to do something and you take it and do it, and then you give up on it in a day, your mom and dad are not going to be happy with you about that because they had to face their community and their family and their, you know, whatever too. So I imagine, I think that he loved Garth and I think he was proud of him, but I think in that moment, he probably had some very not kind things to say. But I think that Garth recognizes it for now is what it is. And he said, I probably would have said the same thing. Like he says, he probably would have said the same thing to his kids. Yeah. And then we get a little flash forward of him again, rehearsing for the stadium shows. So, you know, the year that this was made and he's playing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which I love that song. I love that. And he does a beautiful version of it. It's so good. It is beautiful. So, I'll drop a little snippet of that in here, too. Closing hallelujah. 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 There is nothing like a Garth Brooks live show with the whole band and everybody in it. But it also seems that there is a different level of special to me. When we catch these little snippets of it, just Garth and an acoustic guitar in an audience, like those things are special to me. And it does that a few times in this. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And then they show us that little video of Garth on AM Oklahoma in 1986. And it's the band members, like I think Ty's there, but the drummer's not Palmer. So I'm not really sure who that is. but. They're singing Charlie Daniels, I'm Drinking My Baby Goodbye. And the AM Oklahoma newscaster notices that Garth's wearing a hat. Turns out Garth works at a sporting goods store. And so he asks the drummer, what do you do? (laughs) The drummer says he works at a vegetable stand on the side of a highway. (laughs) I like that guy. (laughs) That's great. Uh, Right. He's like, that's my kind of guy. <laughs> you know that that newscaster later, like two years later, was like, I interviewed Garth Brooks. That's probably yeah. still on his resume <laughs> <Yeah>. today. <laughs> probably. So then we get to Garth and Sandy's first wedding anniversary. And she talks about how now they're moving to Nashville. So it's happened. It's a couple years later since that first 24-hour trip. And Garth says that they're living in a three-bedroom house. With seven people, five guys, two wives, an infant, a dog, and a cat, all living in one house in Hendersonville, Tennessee. That's crazy. Crazy to me to think that that Garth was at that level at some point, right? Just knowing who Garth Brooks is now. They were struggling to eat off of 99-cent spaghetti and $2 pork chops between all of them. Like Sandy talks about how they would shop and they would get these meals and they would break them down and they would split everything. And it goes back to just showing, you know, put the work in like you got to they say sometimes you got to hit rock bottom to reach the top. And, you know, I'm not saying that that was rock bottom, but it sure didn't seem like it was easy for him. No, it sure didn't. And that's where they end up getting the job at the boot store. Garth walks in, introduces himself. The guy says, you've got to be from Oklahoma or Texas. Garth says, yes, (laughs) Oklahoma. And so the guy hires him on the spot. Tells him he can hire one other person. Garth says, can it be my wife? (laughs) The guy says, yes. And there we go. Now Garth and Sandy both have jobs. Yeah, that easy. So next we get our first sight of the Bluebird Cafe, which I can say I've actually been there. I've been there one time. Yeah. (laughs) 
Me too. Maybe in your future, maybe in your one time. I haven't been there at all. So Nashville's another <laughs> stop right. on the list of places. You have I to really got to gotta hit the lottery at this point. <laughs> I have a book somewhere that I bought the first time I went to um, the Bluebird and it was by Amy Curland, who's the owner there. And it's got a lot, it's got some stuff in it about Garth, actually, now that I say that I should look it up and there's probably some really cool information in there that I read at the time. I don't remember now, but then we get to see Garth talk about seeing Tony Arata perform at the Bluebird and hearing the dance for the first time and how he approached him. And he said he was probably not the first to say, if I ever get famous, I'm going to cut this song, you know, and how sweet Tony was about it at the time, even though neither one of them were on the cusp of fame. At that point, as far as they knew. I love that. And Garth says that every syllable was crystal clear to him. I love that that song got him right from the very beginning. Yeah. Tony says at that time, he was loading trucks at UPS and had this song. To think then that he had the dance, right? Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. And some kid who worked at a boot store was coming up saying, hey, if I get a record deal, I'm going to record this song. I mean, I'm sure they were both like, okay. That's amazing. And next we get Stephanie Brown telling Garth about Bob Doyle. Yeah, look at that. There's another, hey, I know this guy you got to know. That's a great story, too. We need Bob Doyle in this story. He is integral. Mm-hmm. At that time, what was he leaving ASCAP, right? And he wanted to start his own label. Said he was going to take Garth with him. He wanted him on his label. Yep. And then guess what? Bob Doyle introduced Garth to who? Kent Blazy. Kent Blazy. <laughs> yeah, like, I know this guy you should see. <laughs> and that's when Kent started using him on demos and Garth started getting paid for it. That's where he started getting paid more. And Kent says Garth could sing bluegrass and blues and rock and roll and everything in between. And then came Jess's favorite story. You know what that <laughs> is. Yes. And then Kent Blazy, our favorite person in the world for doing this, said, hey, there's this girl that I really think you need to meet and who I think you guys would sing great together. You you sing a lot of the, the same licks. And he set up a demo session for the two of them to sing together. And Garth and Trisha got to meet for the first time. That's the best day ever. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I think that they might agree. <laughs> And Trisha said it felt like they'd been singing together forever. And that, that's just not something that happens in the industry, right? And you're like, whoa, that's like, that's like real, real, like for her to feel yeah. that way. And then Garth, right? He, I mean, he, he thought he just met his future wife. I love that Garth said the guys, the other guys were like, we yeah, all feel that a, way. A lot of us feel that <laughs> way. Me too, boys. Good, Me too. Good luck with that, buddy. <laughs> and Garth even remembered what she was wearing. Awesome. Yeah. How sweet is that? So we have Kent Blazy. To blame for all of that. That's what so Trisha it's says. It's all yeah. Kent Blazy's fault. Or was it Bob Doyle that introduced him to Clint, right? Kent Blazy that introduced him? Right. I mean, this could go. That <laughs> right, person right? that needed this person. Yeah. If you do person. like seven degrees <laughs> of Kevin Bacon. Well, I mean, then yes, it goes back to exactly. Stephanie Brown who told yeah. Garth about right. Bob Doyle. It just keeps going. <laughs> and that one guy I at Willie's Saloon that, that gifted him the $700 to go to Nashville. That guy, <laughs> <Right>. damn it. <laughs> So who really gets credit at the end of the day? Right. So then we start talking about If Tomorrow Never Comes. What a great song. That is a good song. And Garth talks about the story of writing that. And he says, is this what you were feeling when he's come up with like half the song? Yeah, that's that's it. it. Yeah. (laughs) I just can't believe they pitched that song around town for a year. Seven different labels, seven no's. Like how does that song get turned down that many times well and garth garth himself was going to those seven different labels and getting turned down seven different times how stupid must those labels have felt i mean great song you got bob doyle back in you and he even said like he started thinking this maybe this isn't gonna you know maybe it isn't gonna happen for me and that story about him and bob doyle cruising down that back road or whatever in that truck and Garth's reaching down to grab something off the off the floorboard and Bob stops the truck and says, hey, listen, you know, it's not about if it's about when like this is going to happen. And Garth even mentions that at that time, like this guy right here believes in me that this is going to happen. Maybe it's time that I start believing in myself that it's going to happen. And I think that that's just like 
you know, you need that pick them up in your life, right? Like, you know, you need that support system to tell you, hey, you know what? Things aren't always going to be easy. You keep working at it. It's going to happen for you. And at that point, you know, Bob had already refinanced his house to start this label and, you know, laid all the chips on Garth. So he 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 needed it to work more than Garth did, I think, at that point. So that was a cool story. I, I enjoy that story when he tells it. Yeah, that is a good one. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the story of the bluebird where Garth was supposed to go on later in the night. But someone didn't show up who was supposed to perform second. And so the guy at the Bluebird comes up to Garth and says, can you go on second instead of later? And Garth says, yes, I can. And that's just the epitome of every suddenly discovered person's story. Because Garth didn't know it, but there were record labels in the audience. And that's such an important lesson, too, in especially if you're pursuing something like music in Nashville, but anything in life really, I think, is just taking an opportunity when it's presented. Because he could have just as easily said like, oh, I'm not ready yet. Let somebody else go and I'm going to, you know, go in the time that I was supposed to go in or whatever. Can I go like third or fourth? But he was just like, yep, you need me to go second. I'm going to go second. And look what it did for his life. Lynn Schultz from Capitol Records actually got to see Garth Brooks perform live. And I mean, I guess, you know, we're talking about thanking people. Could we just thank the guy who didn't show up second to <laughs> open that spot up for God? <laughs> thanks, man. We appreciate you bailing out that night. For real. We don't know who you are, but thanks. I thought about that, too. I'm like, I wonder who that was. Right. <laughs> yeah. So Lynn Schultz, who we mentioned, was with Capitol Records. And so he saw Garth perform live. He told Bob Doyle, hey, I think we might have missed something. Bring him back in. So Garth went in that next Monday and he says they shook on it and walked out with a deal ready to work. And Garth got a $10,000 advance check. And the look when Garth says, I was going to work for Capitol Records, like his face is just lit up. You could tell, I think, obviously, because Colleen was with Capitol. I think that, you know, and he says it like, you know, that was like, I think that was the one that was the one he targeted. Like that was the one that he had on his list he really wanted. So to get that deal was was pretty cool. You know, he, we don't know, right? Because we're not in the music business, but you see movies and hear these stories about how bad, like in the music industry, some of the like, that's the way that things work. And it's crazy because he even, okay, so the, the deal, it was done, got the money, but then the war started and I'm like, whoa. It really is a war. Like, <laughs> they really got to fight for this stuff. Yeesh, I don't want to be a part of that deal. Right. But I love that he was like, you know, you don't get the record deal and go, okay, it's home free now. Like, I have the record deal. It was like, now I have a record deal. And now I have a shot. Like, now is when we start to really work. And I, I think, again, that's part of why he was able to be so amazing and do all that he's done is because right. he goes into things with that attitude. He doesn't sit back and rest. He knows that that's when the work begins. Yeah. So then he meets Alan Reynolds, who was his record producer on a lot of his first albums. And Garth wanted to work with Alan. Alan wanted to work with Garth. And Alan was willing to pay for it. That's crazy. Garth says that never Never. happens. Who does that? Alan does it. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So they get a deal in August of 88. February of 89, Much Too Young comes out. And April of 89, they get that whole first album. And then Garth talks about hearing Much Too Young on the radio for the first time. How great is that? Dang, could you imagine like working all that, putting all that effort and all that hard work into something, you know, get your music out there and then all of a sudden you're on the radio. Dang. Yeah. And you could see his face lit up. He started to tear up. Like that's a moment he's remembered and will remember forever. And then we get that old video from 1989 of Garth playing. He says back in the day, they would play that like eight times a night because it was the one, you know, real hit they had and everybody would just listen to it every time they loved it. That's great. And then he mentioned at that point, they were on travel and doing shows over 300 days a year. And not only were they doing shows, but the show would get done, what, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. Then they would continue to stay and sign autographs until the very last person left. Yeah. And then as more people got to know who he was, they would call people and say, hey, he's here signing autographs. And Jessica goes back to that 24 hour, you know, signing or whatever. And then they get back in the van and then off they would go to get to the next show over 300 days of traveling, man. Like Keith Urban mentions, you know, a lot of these guys, like the ones that are real successful, 
that they respect the most are the ones that put the work in, you know, from the trenches. Sounds to me like Garth and the band put the work in for sure. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And, you know, it was Dave Gant that told that story about the county fairs and signing autographs. And my first thought was, well, there you go, Pete. There's someone you've met in Garth's circle. Yeah. Couldn't have got him to come out and sign me an autograph, Dave. It's true. We were like one degree of separation from Garth that day. So then we get to Mike Brooks, Garth's brother, talks about If Tomorrow Never Comes and how his whole the whole family got together and watched him perform and how he later told his wife, you know how Garth can really hold the family in the palm of his hand? And he tells his wife, I just watched him do that with 5,000 people. Yeah. And so watching that, that was amazing to me because I'm thinking 5,000. That's so small compared to what Garth plays for now. Can you imagine that this guy's like right. 5,000 people? It's a huge difference. Compare that to like Central Park. Yeah. It's like a million. <laughs> Crazy the, the steps it took to get to where he is now and the things that he's seen along the way. I just don't think there's anyone that has stories like he must have. If they do, I promise nobody could tell him as good as he does. That's probably true, too. So now we've gotten up to the point where he has his first Grand old Opry performance, and they show a clip of that, and he was so nervous, like you could tell. I don't know that I've ever seen Garth that nervous before. Yeah. Yeah, he was almost awkward, which for Garth doesn't usually yeah, happen. Yeah, you never <laughs> think this, that you would see that from him. So next we hear about how Alan Reynolds picked out the dance from Garth's pile like he had a pile of songs and picked out the dance and told him it would be the biggest hit he never had if Garth didn't record it. And so then they talked to everybody in Garth's circle about the dance, about how great it was, how they knew it was going to be big, and how the intro to that song came to be. And so hearing Tony play that, you know, he did his little acoustic version of it. It was beautiful to see where that song started and where what it became. Garth didn't think it was country enough at the beginning. And I love how Garth says that he can't imagine his career or his life without the dance. Um, it gave him and his career its own light. So I thought that that was great. Yeah. Yeah. I love how Tony Arata said when he heard the finished product too, like he didn't even recognize the song anymore, like with the musical treatment that they had turned it into something so huge compared to, you know, what he felt like he had started out giving them. Yeah, he said that that just shows that's a good sign of a, of a great producer and a, a great artist. Yeah. And so then we hear from Melinda Newman, who was an executive with Billboard magazine, and she talks about how No Fences just took off. And Tony talks about how he hit like a meteor when it, when it took off. He went from doing clubs to doing arenas in one year. Yeah. And he just reinvented the wheel and people just responded to him obviously just blows up. And then Garth had mentioned that the the next song, no matter how big or how small they were going to be as a group, that was what was going to make it. And they were looking for that song and it actually ended up being friends in low places. It's crazy how that kind of all just snowballs into it, right? You come off the dance, everything blows up. And then in order to keep that going, you got to find that next big hit. And they found it in friends in low places. Yeah, they did a good job picking that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which then that led into Thunder Rolls, and Garth talks about that, the controversy involving that song and the video, and yet it did great. That video ended up winning every award possible. He did, you know, the song after its original controversy took off, and I thought that was, it was a great story to talk about how that kind of came full circle. Mm-hmm. There's a point in it where Garth says that the bad press that they got off of it, like he said, that was the first time that he heard people talk about how they hated him or they hated the music or the 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 story behind the music. And I was like, oh, man, like, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're on the top of the top, right? And you bring out this song and now all of a sudden people are talking about hating you and your music. I'm like, Eesh, that had been a, a really low, right? The, the ebbs and flow, that was a very, very low there. Right. And his first taste as a like a famous person, basically getting that, you know. Unfortunately, the treatment that famous people get, like they're not real people, but that like we hate Garth, like, you know, they don't know him. So that's your first taste of, I mean, imagine if you're a famous person, you're just you. And suddenly there's people that you don't know saying we hate this person. That's, you know, that's powerful. And it's something you you probably have to stop and take stock of the first time it happens. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then we get the quote from his mom about how No Fences was going to sell 10 million copies. And everybody kind of made fun of her. And ultimately, it sold like 18 (laughs) million. Of course, his mom would say that. Yeah. (laughs) You go, Colleen. You were right. right. Plus them. Right. So then we get into where Rope in the Wind comes out. So now 1991, we go back to Melinda from Billboard talking about how SoundScan became a thing. Like that was the first time SoundScan had come out. And now instead of them just calling record stores to find out how many albums did this record sell, instead they've got barcodes. And they can now scan these codes and find out exactly how many records were sold. Which, of course, then changes everything. Because now Garth isn't just being considered for the country charts. Now his album is all over the place. You know, it's on the pop charts, the Billboard 200. It comes in at number one. And it volleys back and forth from the number one to the number two spot for six months. Like that had never happened before. It just kept going up there. And then somebody would release, you know, like a Guns N' Roses or somebody would release an album that would... right. They would take the first spot and Garth would drop down to two, but then Garth would kick him right out the next week. So that's amazing. That whole story, like just to tune in for that story is amazing. And he said that that was really exciting to watch, that that album would go up and compete against other genres, kind of really built a name for itself while while doing that, like you were saying about bouncing back and forth, number one. Yeah. And, and at that time, he was the first artist ever to have a number one music video, a number one single, and a number one album on the Billboard 200. Like, that's crazy. And then we get Trisha talking about how opening for Garth, she was opening for him at the time, and how it was like the Beatles, watching the way that people reacted to the Beatles. That's amazing to see. I can't imagine what that frenzy was like. Crazy. And the next little segment was about the NBC concert, the very first concert that they did, the television show. You know, you've got the smashing guitars and Garth's mullet, and he's got that blue and black shirt, and... That's just iconic for me. Like that is the 90s. I see images of that show through my head and that just screams the 90s to me. Yeah. Man, that TV special, it's crazy. Running, jumping on the rope, swinging here and there and all that other stuff. Man. So then we are getting just about to the end of the show and we have Tony Arada speaking about how his daughter, his first daughter and Garth's first daughter, Taylor, were born just a day apart in the same hospital. And yet the difference is Garth can't even walk around the hospital holding his daughter because of who he is. Right. But Tony, the guy that ended up singing one of the most famous songs of Garth, could walk around no problem. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You have, I mean, the difference between the singer and the songwriter. Right. What a different life they lead. Yeah. I mean, Garth talked about that first photograph. He never realized that the person to get that first photograph was going to be, you know, it was going to be a big deal to be that person. But we come back to the blessing and the curse. Yep. He starts talking about it's the life that he, that he always wanted. And, you know, Sandy mentions that everything that he touched turned to gold and everything was just blowing up. Like they show videos of him, like up on top of the tower records, like thinking about, get down from there. First of all, you're going to hurt yourself. (laughs) Okay. I don't see no safety chains. So let's not do that again. But it's crazy to think. In that period of time, they're rolling around in a truck packed full of a band. And now all of a sudden, by the end of this episode, a couple albums into it, they're competing, staying at number one on, you know, charts with YouTube Metallica and everything is just going kaboom. Yeah. But the one quote that I have from Sandy at the end of that, which really touched me, was she said something to the effect of, but they never stopped to think how fame would change their lives. It was something they always wanted. But they never stop to think what happens when you get it. Yeah. And I don't think you could because I don't think you ever like he might have thought like, oh, I want to be a successful artist on par with other successful artists at the time. But he never in a million years would have been like, I want to be Garth Brooks because there was just no precedent for what that was. Like, I'm sure he was never like, I want to be bigger than the Beatles. Yeah, it's true. All right. Well, that wraps up our discussion of the first episode of Garth's The Road I'm On documentary. Have you checked out our website at garthology.com yet? If not, stop by, leave us a comment on our blog page to let us know how we're doing. Plus, you can submit a show idea. 
While you're there, go ahead and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the website. And remember to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Do you listen on Apple Podcasts? If so, stop by there now and give us a rating and write up a quick review to let us know how we're doing and to encourage others to listen. Plus, are you in a Garth Brooks fan page on Facebook? If so, don't forget to share us with your group by posting about us or sharing one of our posts there. Help your friends in low places become Garthologists too. And speaking of friends in low places, if you're on social media and you like to venture into Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com backslash GarthologyCast. If you enjoy using Instagram or Twitter, you can find us there at GarthologyCast as well. While you're there, if you would like our post, share our post, retweet and or just interact, we would greatly appreciate it. We enjoy the interaction with our Garthologist friends and we really appreciate the support. Next time on Garthology, we'll be covering part two of The Road I'm On. This will be season two, episode 10, and will be available on your podcast platform of choice on April 7th. Until then, this has been season two, episode nine of Garthology, and I'm Deb. I'm Pete. And I'm Jess. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Okay, where are we going now? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I knew where I was going to go, but it just seemed like Jess was really quiet. I was waiting for Jess to say something. I'm like, wait, is Jess there? Can she hear us? I'm here. I'm listening. A bit further. You know what, Pete? Stop going back and forth on your microphone because oh, you're shit. doing this. <laughs> I, I get antsy. and sit still. All right, I'll just sit here. I really need a straight jacket and some handcuffs. You can't fix that in editing? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Can we mention what in the hell was he wearing in some of that stuff? What is up with that blue in whatever jumpsuit? My God. And the Mickey Mouse stuff? Come on, man. You're Garth freaking Brooks.